Welcome, everyone, to It Simply Isn't Done, the Sermon Recap Podcast. I'm Reverend Jess Davenport. And I am Reverend Barry Petrucci. We are the pastors at Chapel Hill Church. And together we are the, the Irreverent Reverends. And uh, like the name would suggest, this podcast is the message from Sunday, where we share the scripture and then the sermon, and uh, we meet you back for some reflection on that message. There will be an opportunity to, if you look down in the notes, you will see a place where you can go directly to the reflection. If you already listened to the scripture uh, on the sermon, or if you just want to skip them all together and uh, just hear what we have to think about it, um, you can go there. We're happy you're here. We are indeed. Hello, welcome to this already second week of Advent and yeah. uh, uh, second week of our new series. I believe even when. Even when. Even when uh, all the things of the world are going on that make us question where hope and love and joy and peace can be found, we believe they can be found even when. And this was, uh, so first week was hope, this week was Love, love. And, uh, subtitle, uh, Right Relationship. Daring Right Relationship. So go ahead and take uh, time to listen to the scripture and the message. If you've already done that, uh, you can check out the notes and find out where to go. You can skim ahead right to the marker, and then we'll see you on the other side for some conversation. See you there. Isaiah 7, 1 through 14. In the days of Ahaz, Jotham's son and the grandson of Judah's king Uzziah, Amram's king Rezin, and Israel's king Pekah, Remaliah's son, came to attack Jerusalem, but they couldn't overpower it. When the house of David was told that Aram had been allies with Ephraim, their hearts and the hearts of their people shook as the trees of a forest shake when there is a wind. But the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shirjashib, at the end of the channel by the upper pool, by the road to the field where laundry is washed, and say to him, Be careful and stay calm. Don't fear and don't lose heart over these two pieces of smoking torches, over the burning anger of reason, Aram and Remaliah's son. Aram has planned evil against you with Ephraim and Remaliah's son, saying, let's march up against Judah, tear it apart, capture it for ourselves, and install Tabil's son as the king. But the Lord God says, it won't happen. It won't take place. The chief of Aram is Damascus. The chief of Damascus is Rezin. And 65 more years, Ephraim will be shattered as a nation. The chief of Ephraim is Samaria. And the chief of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you don't believe this, 
you can't be trusted. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as the grave or as high as the heaven. But Ahaz said, oh, I won't ask. I won't test the Lord. Then Isaiah said, Listen, house of David, isn't it enough for you to be tiresome for people that you are also tiresome before my God? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The young woman is pregnant and is about to give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. The word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Joy, beautifully read. You know, for folks that are ever thinking about reading, like Jess and I don't get together and say, Let's, what are we gonna throw at this person? Um, we are there to help in any way we can, but uh, we, are, we are blessed with outstanding readers. Thank you, Joy. <laughs> Pray with me. <laughs> God, bless these words. God, bless the hearing of these words. God, by your spirit, bless the work of these words in the world. Amen. Let's see, clicker's gotta be here somewhere. There it is. I was reminded of it again as I watched images, <clears throat> images of Muslim pilgrims, the practicing faithful, looking for spaces to roll out a prayer mat, just, just to practice one prayer of the prayers of the day. It was being attempted in their home, their home now bombed out, destroyed, desecrated by the spilled blood of innocent civilians in Gaza. I was reminded of unidentified pilgrims in an old New Yorker magazine cartoon, no prayer mats. They were on their knees though, raising their heads and arms to the sky, crying out to the top of their lungs to their God, give us a sign, give us a sign. And in the next panel, there was a flash of light in the heavens and a large sign appears in front of the pilgrims. It says, New Jersey Turnpike, two miles. <laughs> ha ha ha. It was a pre-LOL cartoon, right? It was funny in the cartoon. It's not the least bit so, given the world as it is, where we seek signs in the midst of what used to philosophically be, philosophically be called man's inhumanity to man. 
It is not funny in Gaza. It's not funny in anti-Semitic terror over there or anti-Semitic activity over here. It's not funny when terror impacts neighbors who are Muslim or Jew or Christian or Hindu or Buddhist or Wicca or Mennonite or whatever over here, over there, or anywhere. Not funny in terror perpetrated because of, of color or creed or gender or sexuality or identity or fill in your blanks. We all seek signs, right? We all seek signs that we are not alone in this shoot show, not alone in the, mess, in the mess, not alone in this dumpster fire, not alone in this rapidly warming world where we all share responsibility for keeping the temperatures uncomfortably high, whether they be meteorologically or ideologically or theologically or politically or economically. Signs. Signs point beyond themselves to a higher reality, to a, to a critical message we need to hear, a life-saving or life-redirecting instruction. That red octagon that says stop is a critical message. If we ignore it, there's likely to be problems. The yellow triangle, the yield. Contrary to how we live with it in Portage, Kalamazoo, where it just means speed up, <laughs> it's really supposed to call us to a place of caution. And the merge is a, a sign that tells us for that moment how we're supposed to live together, respect each other. And then there are the signs we look for to get affirmation in decision making the signs that tell us we are loved, cared about, respected. They're the signs that tell us we're going in the right life direction, doing something correct, following a path that feels consistent with, with something like, like God walking just ahead of us, paving, paving a way, offering presence as reassuring as that biblical cloud by day, that life-giving pillar of fire by night, night, so that we know that we are following a path that, that God has said is a good path, a sign. a sign that the correct decision is being made, a sign from God that God is there and that what is going on down here matters and that we are acknowledged, not more than that, that we are ultimately loved by God. Maybe, maybe not a road sign for the New Jersey Turnpike, or maybe, maybe what we need in the moment. So I've needed that sign for the New Jersey Turnpike now and again on the way back east to home. Maybe enough to just keep moving. Maybe that's it. We need a sign that gives us enough to just keep moving because some days, some moments, that's all we can do.
Back in the heart of COVID land days, remember? We were doing an Advent series, much like this one. And I said from this pulpit, well, it has been quite a year, hasn't it? And everybody said, amen. And I said, and as they say, it, it ain't over yet. Wow, was I right. <laughs> if I simply assert that the world is quite a mess right now, does anyone out there in this room or in live stream land want to argue with me? Is this not the messiest mess ever? Reminds me of my kid when she was very small, waking up from a dream, just horrified and telling us about it. And, and she was telling us that she was stuck in a sticky apple puddle. We had no idea what that meant, except she could not move out of it. And it was horrifying. Isn't this not the messiest mess ever? When things get seriously messy, we feel more and more out of control. And perhaps we start to consider powers, <clears throat> powers bigger than ourselves. And then we may wonder about that, about whether God is really in control after all. And if so, when is God going to do something about this mess? Huh, God? Well, it's a good thing we've moved well beyond that. None of that kind of global crisis. Nope, we have a whole basket full of new global crises, including COVID, which is, well, it certainly has proven to be quite a stinker to get rid of. And so you say, okay, preacher, what you got then? I got this text from Isaiah that was really hard to read and harder to understand. We read a bit about King Ahaz. Ahaz is the, king of, is the king of Judah, the southern half of the kingdom of David. The story signals right from the beginning that we're being plopped into the middle of a much larger story. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. So God's had this conversation before. The problem that is the context for the story is the very real threat of war with Syria Sounds relatively familiar, right? And what should be done about that threat? A great empire in what is now Iraq is threatening Syria. Ahaz has refused to join an alliance against them. So the Syrians and some other small nations have banded together and now they threaten Judah. God's word to Ahaz is simple, do not fear. The attack will not succeed, don't fear. Along with it is the message that comes right before our text, translated in the New International Version. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. One more time, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. That's what's gone on before our story. The plot thickens because Ahaz don't, does not stand firm. 
Ahaz does fear, and so he's invited to ask for a sign from the Lord. The prophet Isaiah says, ask for a sign, ask for a sign, ask for a sign. God will give it to you, really, wink, wink. Now, we've all had times when we've had to make difficult decisions, when we've faced moments when we genuinely wondered what to do. But wouldn't this be great? Ask God for a sign. God will give it to you. Just ask. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if you could have any sign you wanted, anything at all? Let it be as deep as Sheol or hell or as high as heaven. So you knew, you knew with absolute confidence that you were making the right decision. Would you not ask for that sign? So how surprising when Ahaz says, eh, no thanks. And Isaiah says, what? Who says no thanks when God offers a sign? Or thanks, but I'll pass. I'm good. When Isaiah the prophet takes a shot at it, Ahaz just defers. Of course. Of course, Ahaz gets a sign anyway. It's, it's like that. God is like the house at a casino. The house always wins. Always. Even when we think we're pretty good gamblers, ultimately, the house wins. So God gives a sign because God wants to give a sign, and this is where it got interesting to Christian theologians because a sign is the birth of a boy who's going to be called Emmanuel, a literal reading of the Hebrew word for God is with us. And then it says that this child is going to be born from a young woman. Now, if you grew up with the King James Version of the Bible, you didn't read or hear young woman, you heard virgin. See, centuries after Isaiah, Christian theologians would lay this text over the story of the, of the Christian Christmas like a dressmaker laying a cloth over a form and pin it up to fit exactly their ideas about Jesus. And so we get this misreading of the Hebrew, which uses the same word for young, unmarried woman and virgin, but they chose the latter. But the story isn't about the woman. It's not even really about the child Emmanuel. It is about a sign from God, a sign for Ahaz to put his faith in God instead of, of, instead of in a big, powerful empire to the east. The sign is God's particular care for the descendants of David. The sign is God keeping the promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. But Ahaz doesn't believe it. He has been, you see, to the Situation Room and has seen the territorial maps and the battle projections. He has gotten the fear-driven messages from his constituents. He easily measures the wealth and capacities of the empire to his east, weighing it all. 
weighing it all, as we are all want to do, against his own calculation of his resources and his chances, he decides to go with his own smarts over the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a way of talking about the awesomeness of God that just might cause us to take God seriously and, and to pay attention to God's signs. That God might have some insight that we don't have, imagine. Ahaz's national policy ultimately fails. The irony is that today he's remembered in great part because of this sign and the name Emmanuel, a sign he never wanted, a child he never knew. Ahaz's story is a story of the failure of faith. I can relate to that, and maybe you can too. I definitely get all the moments when my faith has failed when I've had opportunities to check out signs and said, you know, I'm doing okay, because I'm always doing okay. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to move this all forward in time, to see the moving and the shaking of the nations of the world, creating alliances, creating enemies, working out economic benefits of this strategy or that. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to move this all forward in time, to see nations quickly setting foundations of faith aside in the justification of actions and alliances, of allies and allegiances that benefit their particular political or strategic direction. It is what nations do. It I love babies. <laughs> love it, love it, love it, love it. Doesn't take much. Doesn't take much to get a baby going either. So it doesn't take much because such surrender of being an historic people of God is just so inconvenient when we choose to ignore signs and depend on our own court prophets to tell us what we want to hear. The court prophets were those People. They were the yes men and women. They were not God's prophets who gave the word of God, but they're the, the prophets that the, that the king hired to make sure the king always heard what he wanted to hear. The gospel text on the lectionary calendar for today is Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus. It is scintillating, and I commend it to you, but I didn't want to read it this morning. It includes this same Isaiah cast of characters, along with a myriad of other leaders, both male and female, who make up a largely motley crew in Jesus' family graveyard. Men and women in the long line from, from Abraham to Jesus. Point in fact, the recklessly unfaithful were present leading up to Jesus, and they have been there ever since which is all to say that historically we do not learn much easily and we manage to ignore the signs decidedly. Lest we think that this is just about prophets and kings and matriarchs and patriarchs of decidedly great families from Scripture, I point us to a little chapter of Wendell Berry's significant book, and I commend it to you, The Need to Be Whole, subtitled The Patriotism and History of Prejudice. In a, in a click keeps going too fast. 
in a chapter dealing with the economic changes in this nation, particularly surrounding the American farm, Barry references a work called The Birds of Opulence by Crystal Wilkinson. Barry says the central event of that book is an epic church picnic dinner on the grounds. The family of Minnie Mae, a family in the home place that goes back to before the Civil War, is now scattered away from the agrarian farming roots. They come back about twice a year at Minnie Mae's request. This is one of the times. Wilkinson writes, the returnees show up, talking big city talk, crying, driving long, shiny black Cadillacs and little red sport cars. They bring exotic gifts for their relatives, silver trays full of chitlins and fried potatoes, and crystal goblets for Kool-Aid and sweet tea. The mothers and the grandmothers say, thank you, baby, thank you, baby and will wait for the out-of-towners to leave before cleaning up and placing items in the attic with the other strange things that Ken had brought home over the years. That was the event. That was the show. The love celebrated on the second Sunday in Advent came in the truth-telling that happened, that happened uh, in family, as it happens in all families, around the edges where the real issues reside. You know how that goes at Thanksgiving table, Christmas table. You talk about everything else, and then when the, the old ones go to bed, then the real issues get talked about. So Barry writes, Minnie Mae's sons arrive in a shiny white Oldsmobile. They're awkwardly conscious of their difference now from their country relatives. Their greetings are too hearty. They laugh too much. They look uncomfortable and are out of place in their city clothes. There is some congeniality, some telling of funny stories from when they were young and living at home. But Minnie Mae having gone to bed, the brothers get to the business they have on their minds. So their mother is getting old, one says. The time's coming when she may need expensive care we'll be a whole lot better off if we start making some plans now. Oh, how many of us get to that conversation? And so they turn their minds to the one family property of any value that, they can, that can be sold, the small ancestral farm that lies not far from town. See, we were thinking that we ought to sell the home place. It's familiar. Familiar stories, right? Nations, cities, communities, families sell birthright out of the sense of immediate need, out of a sense of what makes the most sense in this moment. Forgetting all of the love attached to that place, all the history, all the compelling stories. Love for all of that is replaced by love of expedience in the moment without much consideration of right relationship, which is the rooted meaning of the Hebrew word for justice. 
Wendell Berry makes the case that so much of what we face as societies, large and small, from families to nations to allied units, are threatened in decisions that are expeditious, but sacrifice the history, the tradition, the faith, the land, the connections between folk. And love gets lost. Two weeks ago, I closed our series, Earn, Save, Give, with making the case for understanding love tangibly as charity. Charity is slow consideration, slow consideration of needs and doing what we can to respond to needs while building or maintaining the health and the integrity of the other. Economically, charity supports and sustains both the, the one with need and the one in a position to respond. It's like love, like, like all love. Giving and receiving love benefits both, right? Giving and receiving of love benefits both the giver and the receiver. It is a perfect economy, and we sacrifice daily losing that. We've lost it in how we understand family and community and how we handle disagreement and how we wage war in how we support and draw from economy, how we live and how we die. Interestingly, in the text surrounding both the writing of the prophet and the gospel this morning, do not be afraid is called out first by the prophet and then by Jesus, always a kind of clue that the messenger is calling out something that will ultimately reduce fear in the one who hears and responds. Do not be afraid. A new way of being, of relating, of loving takes courage. Turning away from the present order of things so that a new and better era can be born. This is the proclamation of God's reign, and God says, can we not see it? And it's hard when our eyes are closed. So on the second Sunday of Advent, when we call out love as a way of waiting in the world, as a way of being patient with ourselves and with others in the world, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps we would do well to take a bit of time to consider how much love we could, how much love we should, and how much love we would bring, how much charity we would offer in slowing down and considering how much damage we do daily by making decisions that are too fast and too readily impact people and situations beyond our control, beyond ourselves, how much we lose from the home place the knowledge of our own family graveyards to continuously polluting the water, the land, the air, now and well into the future, to disrupting any sense of economy that works for everyone, for all of us, to pay attention to God who is deeply concerned about all of this, even when we don't seem to be. God who keeps asking us to slow down and watch the signs. May it be so on this Sunday of love.
right. Well, Barry, we are already past the second week of Advent, but recapping it together today. What a doozy of a scripture. Doozy. What a doozy. I'm not sure I've heard this particular scripture preached in Advent, let alone any other time. Um, what, yeah, what do you make of all that? What did you think of it? How did you wrestle with it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I mistakenly categorized um, the recommended scriptures that came from Marsha McPhee. This is how we got these scriptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mistakenly categorized them as lectionary. Um, I, I think that's not the case. Um, but, um, yeah, so, so the Isaiah 7, 1 to 14, deep, deep history of the Jewish people uh, at a place of chaos of um, of conflict um, before the nation state was set out to exile mm-hmm. um, and the Matthew piece the first chapter of Matthew which is the as I categorize it as Jesus family graveyard the genealogy mm-hmm. um, and Matthew traces that genealogy to Abraham where Luke traces it to Adam the difference being Matthew was the most Jewish of the Gospels and wanted to make sure everybody understood that Jesus was a Jew. Luke wanted to make sure everybody understood that Jesus was fully human like Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so what did I do with it? Um, <laughs> I went to the history because yeah. I, 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 I had never preached the text that I could find. Um, but 39 years is a lot to keep track of. But uh, I didn't remember doing it. And yet, as I read through it, it was just very familiar for where we are right now uh, as a a world. Uh, We're we're dealing with the same area of the world. We're dealing with nations building allyships and breaking allyships. And yeah. so that's the direction I decided to go is to is to categorize it as a time that wasn't all that much different than our own, uh, but that God spoke into and that the king that we're dealing with in the section of Isaiah, uh, Ahaz, simply decides to ignore the sign and to not ask for it and then ignore it when God gives it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I was struck by um, kind of what you mentioned, reading it and staff. Um, it's a confusing scripture because we don't we're not as familiar with all the players. So having having the context and going back to realizing like, hey, this is some this is some infighting and some squabbling on the cusp of the Assyrians really coming in and taking over, and it's really groups of smaller powers trying to figure figure that out and create alliances or not. And Ahaz was one with the sign, like you mentioned, and that, that part feels really relevant. I was really grateful, however, because sometimes when you, when you read the prophets, um, the context in which they're speaking are to folks that have immense amount of power and responsibility, which many of us do not find ourselves in. So sometimes it's hard to kind of pluck out the relevance um, so I was grateful with the characterization of uh, love and daring right relationship and um, take us take us through how you got there to the interpersonal and to the individual as opposed to just the leader. 
Oh, I, you know, I just jumped off the cliff. <laughs> it was, it was, <laughs> All right, yeah. It, it was it was not terribly subtle. Uh, so, how did I get there? Um, yeah, I, I know that that's where we need to go. Uh, and yet, I got there by talking about how universally deeply concerned we are mm. about global powers and principalities and how decisions are made and I tried to get us there by moving through from the largest kind of senses of communities at, at the national level um, you know once we start breaking down from the global level and going smaller smaller and that we're really dealing with it at the family level mm-hmm. and uh, telling I've, I've been really impacted by this Wendell Berry book yeah. um, um, that that there's this need, this human need to be whole. And yet we do so many things in our time that would indicate if it's something we really want, we don't really work very hard at. Um, so that's how I got to the, to the personal and, and really familial level. Um, to, you know... To what extent people grabbed onto that because it, they're pretty, pretty hard concepts to get in a in a fifteen minute or twenty minute sermon, mm-hmm. but I hope it touched on something that resonated with people. Yeah, what I mean, what did you want people to ultimately take away? I want people to take away that that so often we make decisions at the family level uh, that are that are deeply personal and feel right at the time and are often the things that are easiest for us that are most expedient that are most economically uh, uh, smart at the time without taking a look at the bigger picture and all of the players involved and what it will mean not just in that moment but what it what it means to the past that we have that brought us brought us thus far and also if we, as the, the illustration from, uh, from the book, if we sell this home place, what does that mean for our future ability to mm-hmm. come home? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it do to our relationship with mom to do that? Uh, or even to think about that before mom's gone, who still has a deep sense of home place. And it wasn't a piece where I was wanting to guilt anybody by having those thoughts because we all of us come to those yeah. places and have those conversations. And all too often we don't have the conversations until we're all uncomfortable with the reality of life and death and we make those decisions very quickly. Yeah. You know, so what I what I was reflecting on and what I took, um, and, and this is this is where, you know, you, the spirit, what's been going on kind of in my, in my life outside of just that 15 minutes on Sunday come together, that um, the sense of urgency I feel uh, doesn't, I, I need to work on that. You know, like it's, there's not, nothing is really as urgent as I often make it seem. And some of that is society. Some of that is um, my anxiety. Um, some of that is, um, you know, the conditions of, 
white supremacy. We know that urgency is one of them, right? So in, in workplaces particularly, there's been a lot of work done on that. And so thinking through, okay, well, what actually is urgent and what can I, what can I take a breath and take a beat and think through? And you and I have talked about this in the last week because there's a lot of, uh, I, don't, I don't like to leave things what I feel unresolved, <laughs> uh, mostly interpersonally um, in relationships. And sometimes I think that my need leads to folks feeling rushed or, um, you know, my anxiety then kind of can get displaced and it's just unnecessary. So figuring out how in this Advent time of waiting to not, you know, waiting makes it sound very passive, as if there's nothing we can be doing. Um, but it made me think about stilling um, myself and my heart and my being um, and, and being a little more okay uh, with ambiguity um, and, and trusting that it's okay. That I have a hard, I have a hard time with that. So that's where it took it took me. <laughs> yeah, it, it's countercultural. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you think about it, we're we are marketed to think the exact reverse. Yes, uh, we are. Watch any commercial from the internet on through to to network television to radio, whatever. Every ad is immediate. Yeah. Uh, it, this this is a deal. It's only going to be good for the next twenty seconds. <laughs> um, and so you need to, you need to respond now. Well, mm-hmm. because marketers know that if you don't respond now, you're likely going to forget about it or talk yourself out of it. Um. So for me, that's that's sort of enough to take a hard look and say, if if the, if that's the message we're getting from culture, and here in Advent we're getting a message that says, wait. Mm-hmm chill be expectant of some counter message some um some need that goes beyond this particular moment that you better grab now or it's going to be gone yeah um yeah so so it was really a, a call to to give ourselves permission to to wait and think about what is most loving, not what is mo- not is what, uh, not what is most expedient. Yeah, and I think you can settle into what love looks like a little more after you let it breathe and exist, and you know, let thoughts kind of be out there. Or I should say, I'm learning that personally, and it's it is hard. Um, you know, we were having conversations like that in our staff meeting that the people we're called to love and care for. Um, in addition to ourselves, feel those internalized messages of anxiety and sometimes displace them. Um, And how can we model what we think Advent is about and say, hey, I don't have to take on that anxiety. That is not mine. That is not mine to do. And that's also really hard. Um, It's hard for me, at least. I'm a naturally pretty empathic person and I want to be with people in it. Um, But I that's hard because I, I actually don't, right? <laughs> there are some things I don't want to be with people in um, because of, you know, appropriate boundaries or trying to live into what this season is about. So being very intentional again. I sure. Advent is, is built as like, oh, just sit around and wait for Jesus. It's like, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's anything but passive. 
Um, I think we talked about this last week. I'm not sure on the podcast or if it was just in conversation, but in like a very Newtonian kind of physics way, like an object in motion will stay in motion and it takes more than equal force. Equal and opposite. Yeah. Um, to, To get it moving in the other direction. And so that equal and opposite force of whatever one of Newton's laws that is. I don't know. Um, I, I had to let's take, call it, let's call it. Six. I had to take physics twice in college. So. <laughs> and you were, you were just eating fig Newtons at the time. And <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah, it ended up in physics. Yeah. Was I certified to teach high schoolers science? Should I have been <laughs> at any rate that it kind of applies like that's Advent is not, it's not passive. It's making intentional decisions to not go in the direction that the momentum is taking us in um, because we hold that the momentum taking us in maybe isn't in the right direction. It's not really where we want to go. You know, people people bemoan Christmas decorations being up in stores so early. Um, and, and I don't because I love the joy some of that stuff can bring to people. So if you if you want that bit of joy and you're like, hey, that is wonderful. For me, the bemoaning is the intense drive then, you know, to spend yourself into debt to make some magical Christmas um, when that's that's not really what it's about, but that's what we're sold we have to do. Um, and and we shouldn't feel bad that we're sold that gift because everyone has sold it, right, That or that vision, um, but it does take a lot of personal fortitude and momentum to say, no, nope, that's not what this is about. And what can we, what can we craft and create that might that might be or look a little bit different? I was thinking about this. Uh, you know, we often ask what's a what's a rabbit hole that you were tempted to go down. And uh, for me this week, it was um, I got to thinking about. I did not think about Newton. I, I should um, you should have. I should have. No, I, I was actually thinking about um, being in Michigan, and I don't remember it, it was some meteorological uh thing that mm. that i think ginger lee was doing on on abc um but talking about about the rip currents rip tides mm. and how to work with those if you're caught in one yeah it's not pushing against it it's getting it is, in yeah. it is taking the time to walk along yeah. it let it let it go but walk along it mm-hmm. um, that's the longer route but it is the healthiest route the safest route it's going to get you where you want to be you expend is, less is, energy is, yeah expend less energy it's where you want to be which is safe um, I think I think there's there's good life lesson there and theological lesson there yeah. about about um, when you're feeling caught in something, you know, pushing smack against it is probably counterintuitive and counter, definitely countercultural. So maybe it's giving ourselves permission to walk alongside it for a time while we're discerning what to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll also say one of my... So uh, let me back up. Just generally, uh, you have... Uh, much more mm, I would say like artistic or poetic preaching style than I do um, one of my favorite phrases I think you've ever used in a sermon was talking about what are you why are you already laughing 
it always brings me fear. <laughs> <laughs> well, walk alongside it, buddy. All right. Discern all right. whether or not. <laughs> um, one of my favorite phrases, uh, ju- just because it was so uh, witty and thought provoking, um, was we don't take responsibility for, um, for having the temperature so high, for turning it up. meteorologically which is not easy to say so kudos for that (laughs) you know theologically politically and um like every time i got to hear it twice so that just struck me each time as like wow that is that is a beautiful snippet um that you wove together so wonderfully that i think really tied a lot of the global concerns kind of with with the scripture with the familial concerns um, with some of those interpersonal interactions where we, we do have the temperature too high. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be, we don't have to exist in these really aggressive binaries. So I just, I wanted to give you a kudos cause I, I personally just thought, I was like, Oh, it was gorgeous. It was really good. <laughs> I, I, I geek out on language yeah. and, and poetry. And if it shows up now and again in a sermon, so be it. Okay. I, I hope it, yeah, well, it's gonna, so. I hope it works for somebody. So I'm glad it worked for you. It, it worked for me. Yeah. Well, what else you? What else were you thinking? Do you have any other rabbit holes? Was that the really the the ginger Lee rabbit hole? <laughs> swimming yeah. against the current. No, I, I I thought a good deal about the the swimming against the current piece. Um. Yeah, there was there was a, I often the the most current thing I'm reading often wants to show up. Yeah. Uh, sooner than it, than it should, but um, there were other pieces in in this very dense book. Um, pieces I I wanted to reference, but and it's always dangerous because he is a uh, a writer who's in, in his book he's referencing a lot of history and a yeah. lot of a lot of um, conversation that's that's fraught. In racial difference, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was one of those places where I hesitated to quote a familial situation that, in so many ways, was was formed in and through uh, African American community uh, that goes back to the Civil War period and then carried carried them through um, um, through. Um, Civil, uh, Reconstruction, past what's the Jim name? Crow. Jim Crow, thank you. I we should I'm play going, charades, I, Barry. I was, doing, <laughs> I, was, I was doing Jim Burns. That's not it. It's Jim. Uh, we Eagle, should play charades. Jim, <laughs> yeah. Jim Crow. Um, yeah, and, and so hesitant about about taking that on, appropriating it, and. Um, you know, I know that in my family we've had similar mm. familial conversations, and I've been at those tables after these kinds of decisions have been made pastorally, trying to work through significant, yeah. significant family yeah. conflict that that arises because um, folks move really fast and make assumptions that impact lots of people and a, and a lot of history. So, um, you know, I. It was a place where I really prayed and thought about the appropriateness of using that. So I hope hope it it did not feel like a uh, an appropriation that was unhelpful. Yeah, uh, I I didn't understand it that way. 
Um, I didn't even assign uh, mentally racist to the folks you were talking about. So <laughs> I Good. yeah didn't even have a picture. Um, my middle name's May and my great grandma's Juanita May. So that's kind of where I was stuck, which was fun. The protagonist was Minnie May or one of them. I, I will say I'm I'm excited to read that book. It, eventually, you've given me a few books that I've got to actually sit down and read <laughs> before I get there. Um, but I I love that you uh, would commend that work to folks. Um, and I think for for people in Michigan that have had a lot of history in Michigan or anywhere that's semi agrarian, Wendell Berry's work is incredible and worth the time and reading. Um, I'm saying that as someone who has a tattoo of one of his poems on my arm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I was grateful for that because, um, he's such a thoughtful writer and I thought your use of adding other voices with Emily Towns, um, that was, it, yeah. Yeah. That, that was such a good video. And again, I tend not to bring the video in directly. You but do not. Let the, mm-hmm. let the video breathe <laughs> do, do some work and i thought her piece was brilliant mm-hmm. um and witty so yeah, she's funny yeah letting it be yeah um and just letting you know letting her speak in that clip on kind of her own terms uh, yeah if you're out there it. and don't know what we're talking about um you can email one of us we'll make sure you get a link to the emily towns yeah piece. or just you can watch the service <laughs> yeah, you would need to watch the whole service. It's not on the clip. Yeah, it's right before the scripture. Um, there's a little clip of Emily Towns kind of talking about. At 11 about. o'clock. At the 11 o'clock, the visual sharing. <sighs> well, what else you got for us, Bear? I think, you know, unless you have something particular, I don't have more. You know, and for Advent, I think that's enough. Um, I will I will wait. <laughs> I will let things noodle further. You've got um, week three coming up. I do. What, what you doing? It is the week of joy, um, and we're we've got the Magnificat, um, so we get to talk a little bit about Mary's story, and um, I want to talk about cultivating joy. I I've preached the same sermon, so I'm going to do it again because we need it. Um, cultivating joy as a practice, not just like joy is something that happens to you. And that sometimes joy feels countercultural when there are other horrible things going on in the world. Like we shouldn't experience joy. And I would say it's really just the opposite. Um, your joy, your deep actual joy comes with an acknowledgement that there are other things going on. Um, and it's, you know, it's a fruit of the spirit and a gift from God. And joy is an act of resistance and saying, you know, the, the bad stuff is never, never the final stuff uh, in God's world. So, I mean, that's it's it's Mary Sunday, right? It's Gaudete yeah. uh, Sunday in, in, the, in the Latin. This that that uh, Mary, the Magnificat has Mary being joyful in the face of every reason why she should not be joyful. Yes, I will magnify the Lord. And, uh, you know, she wants to cast down the mighty. Yeah. And I'm here for and that. Why not? I'm, yeah, I, I live for that. That'll be great. Really? <laughs> <laughs> well, friends. I'm, I'm taking note. Wow. Advent 3, we will see you there. <laughs> Don't you do it. Don't you say goodbye. <laughs> Don't you hang up the phone. <laughs>
so staying in. <laughs>